0: I ran across a survey this week of strange questions that are often asked of Google. Like one of them was, am I pregnant? (laughs) Never asked that of Google. One of them was, how do I get home? Never asked that of Google either. One of them was, does love really? Lift us up where we belong. Okay, I made that one up. I just... just... That was probably Joe Cocker's question of Google. But one of them was really intriguing. One of them that I heard about, that I read about, was a really interesting question to me. And that was, one of the questions that people ask of Google very often is, when will I die? And I thought about that. Well, what if Google couldn't tell you when you would die? Would you really want to know? You remember the movie Big Fish? If you don't, it's a great movie. And it's this story about a guy who tells all kinds of stories to his son. His son eventually finds out that they're true. But one of the stories that this person tells to his son is that when he was a kid, in his neighborhood, just like all of us, there was a witch that lived there. And I'm sure that all of you can remember that in your neighborhood when you were a kid, there was a witch that lived there and you never went there on Halloween because you were afraid she would boil you up in a pot. But this witch, the story was that she had one glass eye. And that if you looked into the glass eye, you could see where and how you were going to die. And I saw that and I remember asking myself, I don't know whether I'd want to look in that glass eye or not. I don't know whether I'd really want to know how and where I was going to die. And if you did know how and where you were going to die, what would you do about it? What kind of action would that take in your life? What kind of changes would you make if you knew where and how you were going to die? you knew you were going to die on the way home you'd probably stay here a lot longer (laughs) and yet yet in today's passage there's this amazing story of Jesus knowing exactly when and how he's going to die and yet instead of trying to get away from it He tries to go toward it. And he goes toward it for a very particular reason. And so we'll read that story now. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 9. And it's at a, a central portion in Luke. It's starting in the 52nd verse. This is when Luke begins to tell the story of Jesus traveling his way toward Jerusalem. Part of Luke is this big travelogue where, where Jesus and those who are following him travel to the city of Jerusalem. And this is what happens in verse chapter 9 of Luke in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village into the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Isn't it interesting that at the very beginning of the passage, it says that Jesus, the days for him to be taken up, came. And yet he set his face toward Jerusalem. And what this passage wants to teach us, I think, at least one of the things that it wants to teach us, is that every Christian should take a long look toward the future and not just a short look. If you take a long look and look at everything in the light of eternity, even our death in the light of eternity, if you look at everything in the light of eternity, these small problems that we face become almost nothing. If we look at the journey that we're on in light of the destination that we're made for, the small problems that we face mean nothing. And so every one of us who sits here today, we all ought to take that same kind of a long look that Jesus did. When He knew that it was time for Him to go, He went, set His face as an idiom, toward Jerusalem. I think there are three things that this long look wants to teach us, this passage wants to teach us this morning, so that when we walk out of here, every one of us can realize that it's our job as Christians to take a long look at our lives and at the things that we face in our lives. The first thing that the passage wants to teach us is the reason for the long look. You'll notice in verse 51, the reason that Jesus is taking this long look, the reason that he's setting his face toward Jerusalem is because the days drew near for him to be taken up. There's a little bit of controversy about what exactly that being taken up means. Most scholars say that it could have one of two alternatives. It either might mean him being taken up in the ascension that we hear about in Acts when Jesus is taken up to heaven, or it might mean being taken up on the cross and being crucified. And I think that in all likelihood, it means both of those things. That Jesus realized that that before he got to the time of being taken up to heaven to be with his Father, he had to go through the time of being taken up and dying on the cross. And it's a reminder, all of us have to be reminded that we will all come to the end of our life. That the one thing that makes us all human is that we never get out of here alive. We do everything that we can to try to stave off our looking older or our getting older. But at the end of the day, we do. I remember for years, my father was a Baptist minister, and every New Year's Eve, we would have this special service at, at night on New Year's Eve. And My father, every year, he would say, there are some people who will still have this year written on their tombstone. And it was a reminder to everyone who was there that... Time marches on, but it doesn't march on without some taking some people with it. Jesus realized that he was going to be taken up. Our society is unusual in the sense that we try to hide death. It's very different from even 200 years ago. 200 years ago, no one would have spoken openly about sex, but death was just obvious. It happened in everybody's house. Somebody died in your house, the neighbors came over, you kept the body there for a while, you kept it cool, somebody sat with it, death was an obvious everyday thing. And yet today, it's almost exactly the opposite. Nobody hesitates to say virtually anything about sex, but never do you hear someone talking about dying. I grew up, my father being a minister, I grew up from the time I was a little kid going to funerals. For some reason, that was like an outing. My dad would say, let's... He, he, really, he would say, okay, we'll go to a funeral, and then I'll get you some ice cream. And it was... So, I was kind of happy to go. But as I got a little older, I realized that it, it might not be quite as what I thought it was. And I, I came from a very small time that I was a very small child to realize death happens to all different kinds of people. And I remember my, seeing my father do funerals for older people, but I remember him also doing funerals for children and for babies, and I had to come face to face with my own mortality and to realize that the reason that all of us need to take a long look is because death will come to us all. There will be a time when every one of us is about to be taken up, and we need to be prepared for it. Jesus moved toward that place where he was going to be crucified. That's what's so shocking. That's what's so countercultural about what he did. He didn't say, "Well, if they're going to crucify me in Jerusalem, then I'm never going near that place." He didn't do that. He moved straight toward Jerusalem with the realization that that was but a, a that was a small part of the great history of the world, and yet that event, the crucifixion, is the, the part of history from which all other history will be measured. That's the reason that he took a long look, and that's the reason that every one of us ought to take a long look. It's because we all have an obligation to recognize that we will die, and we need to be prepared for it. But there's a second reason that the passage tells us we should take a long look. It's not just that we look at the reason for the long look, but secondly in this passage, we look at the rejection because of the long look. There's an interesting thing that happens in this passage, and you'll see it yourself. In verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. It's an interesting causal relationship there. Jesus needs to go from Galilee, which was up at the north part of Israel, down to Jerusalem, which is in the south part of Israel. And in order to get there, he had to go through the region of Samaria. And the passage tells us here that they rejected him because of the fact that his face was set toward Jerusalem. And we ask ourselves, what does that mean? Why would they have rejected him because he was going toward Jerusalem? What's what's that really all about? Why are they doing that? And you see, the reason that they're doing that, that, Jesus is facing rejection for a very specific reason. You might remember that Luke mentions the Samaritans much more than any other gospel. And you might also remember, if you've studied the time of the New Testament and all, that the Samaritans were not looked upon very highly by the Jews, and the Jews did not, were not looked upon very highly by the Samaritans. There was a great deal of racial prejudice between the two. And so, when Jews were going down to Jerusalem, it was obvious to the Samaritans that they were going to the temple. They were going often called up to Jerusalem because the temple was on a, on a big mountain. And so even though you came from the north, you would often say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And they knew that their temple, the Samaritans knew that their temple, they thought, was the true temple. They had a different temple, not the temple in Jerusalem. They knew that their Bible, they had a different Bible, was, was the real Bible. And so when these Jewish people came down to worship at the temple of God in Jerusalem, they did not want them going there. And that's the reason that you see there in verse 53 that they rejected him specifically because of the fact that he was heading toward Jerusalem. It's important for us to realize that Jesus Christ himself faced racism. And that those people didn't want him there, not because of anything that he had done against them, but because they felt that he was the wrong race of people. The Samaritans were looked upon by the Jews as being racially wrong. They were racially mixed. They weren't pure Jewish They were religiously wrong because they had their own temple somewhere else, and they had their own Bible that wasn't the Bible of Judaism. And so there was this very serious cultural clash that went on between them. And as Jesus tries to pass through that area, as Jesus tries to go through that that small area of where the Samaritans lived, they say, we don't want you here. And you need to realize that if you take a long look, if you live your life looking in the long direction, sometimes people are not going to be happy about it. Sometimes you're going to face rejection. Sometimes you're going to ask yourself, if God really loves me, why am I facing all of this kind of rejection? There's a very famous minister named G. Campbell Morgan, and in 1880. 88. he was one of a group of ministers who were supposed to preach to a uh, sort of a, a, a people who would grade them or give them a score on their sermon, 15 ministers, and they would decide whether or not they could get into the ministry or not. If their sermon wasn't very good, they would hold the sign down and they couldn't go into the ministry. It was something like the Olympics, only it was for preaching, sort of. G. Campbell Morgan, in 1888, he went there with a number of other ministers, and he was in this giant cavernous auditorium that seated like 1,500 to 2,000 people, and he was preaching, and there were those 15 people there who were judges. And his daughter-in-law, Jill Morgan, in her book about G. Campbell Morgan, A Man of the Word, she says, this is what happened. He went home that day very, very discouraged because he didn't think he'd done a good job. And a few days later, he he got a telegram. And as soon as he got a telegram, he wired one word to his father. And the one word was rejected and his father upon getting that telegram wired him back a sentence and he said two sentences rejected on earth accepted in heaven g campbell morgan became one of the greatest preachers that the united that the english speaking world has ever known in spite of the fact that he was rejected And I want you to realize that simply because you've been rejected doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything wrong, that we serve a Lord who was rejected. We serve a Lord who was not loved and liked by everyone. And we know that in other parts of the world, there are many people today who take their lives in their own hands whenever they go to church. A couple of weeks ago, I got a call from, uh, actually an email from my friend whom I met when I was teaching at an underground seminary in China. And it's, she's Asian, obviously, she's from China, and so there, there's sort of a cultural gap. And so she writes me and says, I'm going to be in your area tomorrow. Can I stop by and stay at your house? Uh, okay. With three kids. And my husband. Now, it wasn't her three kids, because nobody in China has three kids. You know, there's a one kid law. But they didn't end up staying. But I remember asking her, so, you know, you hear all these things about persecution in China. Have you ever been persecuted? And she said, oh, no, no, no. The police have only come to my house only like two or three times because of the church. I said, what? Yeah, yeah. The police come and they say, you shouldn't go to church and we go anyway. Ah, they don't they don't they don't mean anything by it. She said, yeah, every once in a while somebody will come in and they'll destroy all our instruments or yell at everybody in the church, but ah, they don't mean anything by it. I thought, what an interesting, an interesting mindset that is, that here in the United States, Christians feel like they're persecuted if somebody says something bad about them on television. And in China, they're willing to have the police come to their house, have the government come and destroy their instruments and never think anything about it. And I want you to realize that there's nothing wrong with being persecuted for the cause of Christ, that our Lord was persecuted, and we must not ever think that Christianity somehow allows us to escape persecution and rejection. Everyone faces rejection of one kind or another. I was just reading yesterday, interestingly, the, the story of hymn writer Isaac Watts. You, any, if you look at a hymnal, you'll find lots of hymns that he wrote. And it was a story about him proposing to a woman, and she said she couldn't marry him because he was too ugly and laid it out, he was just barely above five feet tall, he was bald, (laughs) and he had a really big head. What? (laughs) But it was amazing to me that Isaac Watts could take that kind of rejection and turn it into a wonderful life for the church, and all of these hymns that we have available to us today by Isaac Watts come out of that sorrow and that rejection, but also of realizing that no matter who rejected him on earth, he was accepted in heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we realize that we ought to recognize, all of us, that there will be rejection because of taking a long look. If we look at things in the way that Christ calls us to, there will be rejection. But there's a third thing that we Should realize. And that's not only is there a reason for taking a long look, not only is there a rejection because of taking a long look, but finally, in the last couple of verses that we read, there's the result of taking a long look. You'll notice what happens in verses 54 and 55. There's some interesting things. Once Jesus is rejected, the Apostles sort of start to get involved in verse 54 when his disciples James and John saw it They said Lord you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You can imagine James and John sort of the Barney Fife of the disciples saying we'll take care of this We'll get our bullet out we'll take care of these Samaritan people We'll call down fire burn their whole town down we'll show them that they can't reject you and yet, that's a total misunderstanding of who Jesus was and why He came. A complete misunderstanding. And that's the, the reason that Jesus turns on them. He says in verse, in verse Luke tells us in verse 55, He turned and He rebuked them. And we realize that this misunderstanding happened. The Samaritans misunderstood who He was. The disciples misunderstood who He was. And there are lots of other people, lots of people outside the world today who misunderstand who Jesus is. And they will misunderstand us if we are a follower of Jesus and if we live our lives taking a long look instead of just taking a short look. But I want you to realize that not only is there a misunderstanding, not only is the result of this taking a long look a misunderstanding, but there's also a mission. You'll notice it in verse 55, in the beginning of verse 56. Depending upon which version of the Bible you're reading, you'll you'll notice that they're they're a little different. The ESV in verse 55 and 56 says, But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. But if you're reading the King James, or the New King James, you'll, you'll understand that it says... He turned and rebuked them and said, and it tells us, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy people's lives. You'll see that there. The text in some uh, manuscripts says the Son of Man didn't come to call down fire on people, but He came to save people. He came to offer people the great news of salvation. And even if that text shouldn't be there in verse 55, it's certainly later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus very explicitly says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the ultimate result of taking a long look is the realization that our only hope is in Jesus Christ and that anybody who looks at anything else in their life for ultimate salvation is doomed to be disappointed. There are only two ways that you can go through life, really. You can either go through life depending upon Jesus Christ and realizing that whatever small sorts of problems that you face right now are only temporary. Or you can go through life thinking that at the end of your life everything is over and only what you do right now really matters. One of those is a wonderful way to go through life, and the other is a terrible way to go through life. And I want you today to walk out of here asking yourself, do you really believe what Jesus said? Do you really believe that he came to seek and to save people, to give us an absolute wonderful place to live after we die? Because if you believe that, then everything else sort of pales in comparison to it. It doesn't really matter so much that you don't have the car that you want or the house that you want or the money that you want or the job that you want because you realize certainly these things are important, but they're not nearly as important as trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two ways. There was a great famous atheist named Robert Ingersoll in the 18th century. Some of you have heard of him, I'm sure. Robert Ingersoll, at one point, had to speak at the death, at the funeral of his brother. Being an atheist, he said this, while yet in love with life and raptured with the world, he passed to silence and pathetic dust. Life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer is the echo of our wailing cry. That's a sad, sad thing to say at the death of your brother. Essentially what Ingersoll was saying, that we are light bulbs, and when the light goes out, we are finished, and there is nothing left. That's one way to take a look at eternity. But we are thankful to God that there is another way to take a look at eternity. My mother was the finest Christian that I've ever known. You've heard me speak of her before. She was the one who actually practiced what I preach. And I, (laughs) really, she did. And I remember when I was about 23, getting called to the hospital, and the doctor gathering my brother and my sisters together and telling us, your mother's not going to make it out of the hospital. We were all shocked by that. We didn't know what in the world was going on. We thought she was just sick. We had no idea that she was. this was going to be fatal for her. And so for the next few days, all of us stayed around there and went in to see her knowing that this might be the last time because she was not going to get out of the hospital. And she was a little... Uh, loopy from the drugs and stuff that they were giving her, and my mother had never drank alcohol or anything like that, and I remember one time I went in the hospital gown because she was contagious, and she said, oh, whoever made that shirt, they did a great job, it fits so nice, and I just laughed at her, and then in laughing at her, I just started to cry because I knew this was going to be the end. And while I was crying, she looked up at me and she said, Sam, what's the matter with you? You just trust the Lord and everything else will be all right. That's what taking a long look really is. It's trusting the Lord and knowing that everything will be all right. And so you have on one side, Ingersoll saying that our life is nothing more than silence and pathetic dust. And you have on the other side, Trust the Lord, and everything will be all right. Today, I want you to walk out of here realizing that you, just like Jesus, can take the long look and that whatever difficulties you face, they are nothing compared to what's coming.